I'm here with Dan Kamen, Nobel laureate and professor, UC Berkeley, where he is chair of the Energy and Resources Group. There is an electrified, clean energy world that has more jobs, lower prices of energy, and then all of these savings because air quality gets better. Even in cloudy parts of the country, solar is now so inexpensive that building integrated solar, building integrated energy storage, turning roadways into solar as we're seeing in some parts of the world. The vision and the dream of solar in providing equitable energy at low cost has been surely deferred. But after 43 years since Jimmy Carter was president, have we finally revisited renewables? So there's induction charging. So if you, for example, are a business, you're running a taxi cab company, you don't need to pull cabs out of work to recharge. They can recharge around these induction strips on the road. We invite you to our vision here at Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. I'm your host, Robert Lundahl, filmmaker and journalist. We can now amortize buildings, public housing projects, where you can really build your energy infrastructure into the urban and rural areas. Building it into advanced materials available for construction helps finance change. Roofs, windows, heating and cooling, anything is possible. That's the excitement and we're More seeing holistic. nibbles. Um, we're not seeing a whole lot of utilities kind of you know, go whole hog um, yet. That's where Build Back Better or whatever or place that I see. The yeah, well, I was going to ask you about the CEC, California Energy Commission, and the PUC, and the other the other players, you know, that set rates and regulations and so forth. So they have to get behind this. That's what you're saying, right? They do. I mean, some are. It can be a long way from innovation to the mainstream, and the consumer adoption process can be rocky and unfair. That's why building in equitable access to standard of living technologies can help level the playing field beyond energy alone. So the California Air Resources Board um, essentially devises the, the climate plan. In California, the climate plan currently calls for us to be carbon neutral by 2045. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful there'll be legislation soon to move that forward, maybe by as much as a full decade, not giving us you know, a whole lot of time. That Air Resources Board sort of sets the high-level policy, invest in some research, invest in pilots, the California Energy Commission examines how to scale up those projects and how to work around programs to do public access electric vehicle charging, siting issues around many of these clean energy projects, and then the Public Utilities Commission. The PUC works out the financial part of that. New York and California alone are almost 40% of the, of the national um, economic output, and they, they're both very aligned on not only clean energy, but a social and racial justice aspect. Spending in California requires 35% or more of the uh -huh. revenues from our cap and trade goes there. The Biden administration has done us one better. They've said that 40% of federal spending in this area needs to go for justice projects, meaning um, energy and infrastructure projects that preferentially target fence line communities, 
communities of color, those that are in environmental non-attainment areas. And so there's a real push to, um, to utilize the energy transition to do something we haven't done in the social front. Those communities that have been left out of the efforts to put in rooftop solar, all these things are now targeted for the front line of these efforts. So with net metering in the common consumer environment, it allows a household to sell back something like 106%. It's slightly over 100, but it's not really like you can monetize this significantly, right? So if you're a small farmer, if you're going in at a higher level, if you're producing more power on your land, is there really a reason? Is there a limitation at all? This is where the jumble of regulation gets complicated. The net metering battle is really about the smaller rooftop units, be they small commercial or residential. When I did my first solar installation 15 years ago, I put in three kilowatts. Um, that didn't quite meet all of the needs in my home. I had you know, two young and then teenage daughters at home. We've replaced that with a system that's twice as large, so almost six kilowatts, and we installed storage. So we can now be a useful supplier to the utilities if they can get out of their own way and permit this in a simpler way kind of like in Germany, where the bureaucracy is actually quite low, to make my home or a similar system on the roof of a 7-Eleven store or something, make that a commercial vendor. That's where that 106% comes in. And that 106 probably be higher, maybe 120 or something. But that's really different than the, um, than the story for farmers and more rural landholders. Can a tribe fund their health care? Yeah, so, so, Tribes are in their own particular bucket through the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It's a bit of a different loop. There are some tribes um, that have done it on the Navajo Reservation, for example. They recently voted to close their uh, to close the coal mine and the coal-fired power plant. And that got some federal funding. It also got tribal funding. It got some Indian gaming funding. Um, and they and they have put in a much smaller solar system. But they're also investing in distributed solar because the Navajo are, are for example, have up to 15,000 people living without electricity to this day. Mm -hmm. Distributed off-grid is part of that story. And they're really impressive. Um, uh, groups like Native Renewables and Navajo-owned company that is one of the big installers. So that's mm -hmm. one category. But the other one you mentioned is, I think, one of the most exciting, municipalities and farms. So we already have um, significant scale projects called agrivoltaics. So integrating solar into agriculture, but also on, on areas of unused land or marginally used land, you can install solar. And we're now seeing that there are both clear solar panels, there are transparent solar panels, solar can be used as shading. There's a whole variety of different ecosystems um, 
where you can integrate in crops and solar. And of course, crops and wind are an easy combination for places where wind works. So those get permitted differently. Those typically get permitted as if the farm or the municipality is itself a power plant. And what we really need is to get the utilities being proactive to reach out to um, those groups to say, you know, this is a way to not just augment your income, but as we've seen now in parts of Texas, in Iowa, there are farmers that now make more from energy sales mm -hmm. than crop sales on, on, on those same parcels of land. And so right. the low cost of renewals has opened up a whole nother revenue stream we just need to push it much more aggressively. And every time we look at the Gini coefficients, the inequality of income around the planet, we see more and more clear data that while technology is driving a lot of these interesting changes, the, you know, the masters of the tech world, the, 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 the giga billionaires out there, um, are operating in a way that is not promoting more right. social equity. You'd like to blame the individual, but that's really a social policy decision by not having capital gains taxes and things that really return a much larger fraction of the wealth of billionaires back into the economy to be reinvested um, in public transit, in, in high quality housing. Those are critical areas and um, very few governments are are taking that on seriously yeah. well we were talking about um energy inequity as you mentioned and there are many examples so it seems like within the energy industry and its environs there are equity issues almost everywhere and you mentioned the i think the power plant in san francisco that was shut down the pg and e plant and hunter's point yeah. i worked with those people that crew of activists then they became involved in uh in the Kesterton uh, sink and the chemical pollution there. there. There are a lot of problems in California and a lot of reasons why uh, marginalized communities get, get the brunt. We mentioned that too with Alaska. If you live on the coast, uh, your permafrost is melting, your sea ice is melting, so you can't get out there and hunt. You don't have sanitation, so you use a honey bucket. You dump the honey bucket in the lagoon where you fish. Yep, I mean, this is the, these abuses have been there for a long time. Climate change is making them worse, but the underinvestment in, in, in the frontline, most marginalized communities, I would say is the biggest thing making them worse. The new sort of marriage of climate justice and gender, racial, socioeconomic mm -hmm. justice is I would say the biggest change in the clean energy field. So Fridays for the Future, the Greta Thunberg effect, um, Extinction Revolution, these are all efforts to highlight how not only are we, have we built so much of our, of, of, of our global infrastructure on the backs of poor people, but also they are the group that, do, that doesn't get any of the benefits of the new technology waves. And so when you hear discussions about, um, like in California, with the push for electric vehicles, is a very clear component that not only do we need to push for that for the climate, but we need to do it in a way so that charging is available to low-income individuals, 
Vehicles are available either for purchase or lease at or below cost. These are the opportunities to use the climate crisis as a way to address the social one. New York and California, the United States now have what I would consider very progressive um, policies in this area. South Africa is working on their own version right now as part of their energy transition. But we're underarmed um, and we've been irresponsible. I mean, this has been a known feature for decades. People like Robert Bullard um, in the United States, um, Amartya Sen, many others internationally have highlighted this injustice. It hasn't gotten until the last you know, half a decade at most the attention it deserves. There's a lot of groups that have developed the data to document this, but we're way behind on the policy and investment mechanisms to actually address it. How do you make public housing better? How do you solarize it from the beginning? Groups like Grid Alternatives in California are at the leading edge of making energy efficiency and solar part of the build process for low-income housing. Um, public transit is another area where mm -hmm. <clears throat> we need to invest to make these communities more accessible, not less, and that's just not been our history. So we have a lot of work to do. When I was 15, I attended the first Earth Day at Caltech. On display were solar panels promising energy freedom for all. Among the scenes, students constructing geodesic domes from plywood. From plywood, perhaps the dream of low-cost housing will similarly arise, Phoenix-like, from a climate of inequity. Sounds like that might have been the 70s. And yeah, 1970, that was the first year. So uh, I was very impressed. I was 15 or 16 years old, and I thought, this is the future. Energy is free. It comes from the sun. So all of these things that we've discussed are energy is free. It comes from the sun. But other players are involved. Other social priorities are involved. Other methods of accounting are involved. Other geopolitical forces are involved. So I kind of added a question for you, like, uh, what surprised you the most following this whole trajectory of what we've done with energy and how we've thought about energy and also our um, you know, pollutants and our processes that can be wise for the planet or not? Um, what, what surprised you and how would you just categorize having watched this evolution? Well, I mean, I think that a couple things. One is that for a long time, the the, the clean energy sustainability crowd <clears throat> and the business economics crowd were really at odds. Um, there was very little what we now call environmental economics going on. And so a lot of well-meaning technical efforts were really naive in terms of what it would take to deploy and to scale. And that divide is finally closing. Um, and maybe there's and there's lots of interesting examples of it. On January 21st of 2021, the so first full day in office, President Biden signed an executive order calling for the federal government to use a social cost of carbon for all projects. And social cost of carbon is a process, not a number, but that number as currently assessed is significantly higher than the market price of carbon emissions anywhere in the United States. 
California mm-hmm. is about $22 in our cap and trade market. It's lower in, um, in the New England, mid-Atlantic states, but the social cost of carbon is in the $50 or higher yeah. range. So I would say one of the big features be beyond this, this kind of new marriage of climate emergency and the social racial justice emergency is getting the technologists and the economists to now see much more eye to eye in terms of what are the opportunities here. That said, no one's moving fast enough. Countries that are on pace to achieve their Paris climate goals are generally small countries. Um, most people would be surprised it's not Denmark, it's not Germany, it's actually the Gambia and Morocco and others that are that are doing enough to transition their economies. So there's a long way to go. But the toolkit is hugely better than it was on Earth Day. Right? Mm-hmm. Solar wind has gone from the most expensive of all the technologies we talked about to now being the one that defines the lowest cost and lower than fossil fuels. So we can get rid of those fossil fuel subsidies. If we can see the kind of of infusion of spending that Build Back Better would do in the United States, Europeans are are working on their own kind of stimulus packages. The toolkit is there. Um, We're just on a pace right now where when we get this done, it will be decades too late. We need to add zeros to the amount of funding, knowing it's going to produce more jobs, more economic activity. And we need to get many more of the players that are still basically the recipients of those fossil fuel subsidies to see there's a much brighter future for them on the clean energy side. Well, we talked about Australia and coal and maybe getting in the way of meeting goals, you know, for for Australia in that regard. But, you know, here in the United States, we have Joe Manchin, you know, from the coal state of West Virginia. And what do we really know about the opposition there? And uh, why, do, why do you believe that's occurring? Is the coal industry that strong or is Joe Manchin just going off on his own recognizance and making whatever well, I mean, deals we can make? As has been reported, um, so two things. One is that the Coal Miners Association in West Virginia have called on Senator Manchin to embrace Build Back Better because it represents not only jobs in the new clean energy industry, but there's significant funds built in for um, people involved in the mining and coal sectors mm-hmm. to have transition pathways, etc. So I think this is much more a generational and a uh-huh. um, and, and, a, and an elite's question than it is one of certain states. The Manchin family is highly involved in uh, in the coal industry. And so one shouldn't be too surprised that there's opposition there to this transition. The broader story is that while we normally think about this as a Democrat-Republican battle, and so we're kind of surprised when a senator from West Virginia or Arizona um, sides against clean energy. The bigger story, I would say, is that the states where the benefits of clean energy will really be large are states that have really good assets in terms of this. And Mm -hmm. so a whole number of what are called red states in the Midwest are incredibly well endowed with wind resources. 
um, the opportunities to build economies that employ more people than are employed today. Um, many of our agricultural states would benefit greatly if we switched, for example, from diesel to solar water pumping in terms of, uh, of pollution. Well, there were complaints under the uh, Obama Green Jobs Program that there were communities that were being uh, impacted negatively by the placement of renewables nearby and not given adequate uh, opportunity to consult and these kinds of things. Um, so what assurances do we have under Biden and Build Back Better that the environmental justice areas that are so important will be, um, will be managed better? That's absolutely right. And we also have predatory lending, trying to get people who couldn't afford it early on to purchase solar. There's no, there's no single solution to that, but there are some really promising things that have developed. So we right now at the Department of Energy have a very important, very new um, Office of Equity and Work Workforce Inclusivity that's run by an environmental lawyer right now, Shalanda Baker. Um, it's an office that is designed to look at federal investment, be it in solar projects, in siting, um, electric vehicle efforts. And so at the federal level, we have that. In the Department of Justice, there is also a similar office focused on environmental justice and fractions. Um, and increasing numbers of state programs. We've mentioned California and New York have justice written in explicitly to their portfolios. So there is no, I mean, there's unfortunately no simple solution for the problem you're highlighting, but these are a new generation, if you will, of oversight groups. Unfortunately, we seem to be pretty creative at doing things unjustly, right? So one of the aspects of the story is that this is gonna to have to be an area of constant vigilance. Not just because it's renewables, but just because if this is the next growth part of the economy, we as humans have a history of, of doing these things unfairly learning about how we misplaced solar programs in the past, how we gave utilities funds to do energy efficiency based on dollars spent, not on actual energy efficiency, um, how the new programs to site electric vehicle charging to specifically benefit people who are renters and not just landowners. Yeah. There's, a, there's a range right. of these things in place, but we reward private sector gain. Well, you know, it's just interesting to hear you say that it's generational because that's what I was getting to with my first Earth Day story. So there's the 15 year old kid looking at a future, looking at what am I going to do with my life, looking at what interests me, how we're changing, evolving. We just come out of the Vietnam War, uh, the oil crisis. Amory Lovins working with uh, with Jimmy Carter and mm -hmm. Alan Hoffman and others, and there were, there was a, a future, you know, pretty exciting future. And then we saw. Well, you know, Reagan came in and tore the panels off the White House roof and um, Arco got into solar, you know, ostensibly on the idea that, well, we've got all these remote oil production facilities, we can power them with solar and save some money that, you know, they were probably trying to, you know, gain control over some aspect of the market and things like that. So I, th I think it is generational and it's my generation and my generation cares about this. In my generation has done a poor job 
at, at, at seizing the technological revolution in clean energy and making it the ubiquitous technology. The younger generation is rightly and very, very angry at us. That's why these For the Future protests are happening. Um, because they see us as armed with more than enough data to know how damaging climate change is, more than enough data to see the huge socioeconomic inequalities, and not to see us making this job one. The need to do so is acute on multiple levels. Um, but at the same time, you know, we are seeing, I would say it's taken many decades too long but we are seeing now a different landscape. Whether we're going to do enough quickly enough, you know, we'll see. But the clean energy economy, for example, now employs more people in just the solar field in California than in our, in our three traditional utilities. California initially set a goal for a million solar rooftops and was told that's impossible. Blew past that ahead of schedule. Um, California then set a, a goal for a million electric vehicles, said that was impossible, met that just, um, you know, sort of like a year late, but met it. And now the question is, do we push in a similar way so that heavy industry is now also powered by clean energy? I mean, those are those are the steps needed to really decarbonize not only our economy, but to spread it. And so I think that that, whether the angle is um, the convenience of clean vehicles, the fact that it's dramatically cheaper to drive an electric vehicle than a gas-powered vehicle, the recognition that um, while many of us thought the era of robber barons and the super rich was something of the of the, the Rockefellers and the, yeah. and the Gettys and the early generation, well, we're seeing the same thing now. And so the social inequality aspect of our current society is one that I also hope drives much more of a push for clean energy um, before it's too late and we're really pushing the boundaries of what too late is. thank you for being a part of our vision tonight on nature's touch climate change is here in a quest for a better world amid the heartbreak and strife hope is within reach thank you dan Kamen, the greenbelt society hunter college and Pratt Institute. This is your host, Robert Lundahl, filmmaker and journalist. Mm -hmm.